Well, we've come to the end of the Christmas season. We have come all the way from the triumphant angels and trumpets and choirs and shepherds all the way to the Magi, these wise men that come seeking Christ the child, the child of Bethlehem. They become for us a bookend of this Christmas narrative, reminding us of the, the end uh, of this, this period of time uh, in the church liturgical year where we, we celebrate the season of Christmas. By the way, today is not the 12th day of Christmas. Today is the first day of Epiphany. I counted it up three times and when I was standing over there during the song, and this is definitely not the 12th day of Christmas. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there, make sure I was clear on that. So there's been some confusion today. But what are we to do with this, this end story here? We, we know the shepherds and, the, and we know the angels and we know the, the manger and the humble Christ child laying in the manger. What are we to do with this magi? Now, you need to know that the Luke version of the gospel, which, by the way, Michael Green says, one of the strengths of the gospel witness is that the stories are not identical. They have different aspects that they bring together. They, they coordinate for us what the truth of the gospel is, but they're not synonymous. They're not exactly the same. We know from, from biblical scholars that the account of Luke is drawn primarily from Mary's witness, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her reflecting on Jesus and, and the, the account of his birth. You have all the narratives of her encountering Elizabeth, etc., etc., and most likely Luke goes to Mary and gets her account firsthand. Biblical scholars tell us that likely the Matthew version of the narrative comes from Joseph's perspective, which, guys, may be why Matthew is so terribly brief in his description of the birth of Jesus. Did you notice that? And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's like, wait a minute, Matthew, we need a few more details here. Sounds like Jody trying to draw out for me a few more details about an event or a conversation. Matthew is much more concise in his description of the birth of Jesus and moves right away into these magi, these wise men coming. Um, in the angelic choirs and in the trumpets and in all of the, 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 the declaration to the shepherds, we get this recognition that this is a supernatural event that's taken place. This is God becoming man. Take note of this. In the Magi, in the wise men coming, at the end of this narrative, we see this is not simply a message for a small tribe or community of faith, but rather this is a worldwide proclamation. This is for all the nations, which of course Isaiah 60 can, repeats over and over again in our, in our lesson you heard from Isaiah 60 today. Uh, it is a worldwide event. I don't think we really grasp how, when Paul talks in the Ephesians passage, your second lesson, how profound and how radical it was, which is the reason why Paul spends so much time talking about it, for, for a deity not simply to be over a tribe or a people, but rather to be Lord of all, which is why Paul has to convince the, the, the Jewish church that in fact they should receive in Gentile believers, shocking as it may be. 
because this is a worldwide proclamation. The magi, the wise men, come to make us sort of a foreshadowing, a a first fruit, if you will, of the fact that that this is going to be something that is going to be people from every tongue and tribe and nation are going to be drawn to this good news. And these mysterious magi are just the first of it. What are we to make of them? Well, we know very little about them. We can speculate. We have biblical uh, archaeological experts and things like that that give us a little bit of insight. We don't know a lot about them. They were likely astronomers. They likely studied the stars and the planets, and they knew the constellations, and it's likely that they noticed that Saturn and, and Jupiter were going to cross at a particular time. Um, Modern-day astronomers can tell us that, that you know, they can look back at the, at the constellations and determine that, in fact, that there was this, this coordination of Saturn and Jupiter that was, would have meant a lot to pagan ancient cultures, particularly with regard to deities. It's possible that they also were studying the Old Testament scriptures, although they didn't really know Bethlehem, so their knowledge was limited. They're astronomers. They're, they're, they're the least likely people you would expect to come to the birth of Christ, Jesus. They aren't supposed to be there. They are pagans. They're star worshipers. They're, they're foreigners, as we used to say. They're, they're people that we don't recognize, and, and we're not even sure how in the world they got the message, and yet here they are at our doorstep. Immediately for me, the, the implication is to remind us that, that this is not to be simply a Western faith that we, we participate in. We are not simply just Westerners, but rather it's a worldwide fellowship of Christians of all tongues and tribes and nations. And this became particularly um, uh, impressed upon me recently when I was with a friend, Jack Kincaid, who actually went on our hiking trip, the men's hiking trip this fall. Uh, Jack lives here in Gainesville, but he works with worldwide, uh, well-known international ministries that support uh, Christian material, evangelistic and discipleship material being downloaded by satellite radio and satellite TV, and also now through the internet, um, into the Islamic world to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to countries that are shut off from all missionary involvement. You would be thrown in jail or thrown out of the country if you tried to share the very things that any Muslim can now go on the internet and read about. And what you may or may not know, probably don't know, is that tens of thousands of Muslim backgrounds, peoples are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. There's not being made a lot of it on the, on the TV or, or in the newspaper, but it's happening. As a matter of fact, the largest Iranian church in the world is in Southern California. Now, we particularly have an interest in that because we know Brent and Kim McHugh, who, who are the international directors for Chris Starr. But Brent and Kim began by going to Turkey and by working with Iranian refugees, 800,000 of them, and established 11 churches among Muslim background believers, Iranian Christians who are now all over the world because you don't stay in Turkey, you're, you're sent off to Finland or Sweden or Canada or the United States or other places. And those people have formed communities of faith, Christian communities, literally around the entire world. 
I would suggest to you that in the same way that the Magi, the wise men, were, were these, these, these miraculous conversions, these people who were drawn to come to Christ from, from literally nowhere to Jesus are much like our, mothers, our Muslim background-believing friends around the world. As one example. But there are other examples. Sitting in this room are people who have stories that I know and some of you know of miraculous conversions. Paul on the road to Damascus type conversions. Least likelies. Committed atheists or at least committed agnostics who God touched your heart and changed your mind with regard to him and you too have found peace in Christ that probably would shock us if we had known you way back when. The challenge is for us to recognize that just as the magi, the wise men, were important to the story of Christ in the world that they were coming, so too is for us to identify those same voices and not push them out of our lives. Christ does want to call every tongue and tribe and nation to himself. Sadly, Jack tells me that the Muslim background believers are now petitioning the World Council of Churches to be recognized as their own denomination because of how difficult it has been for them to be assimilated into Western churches. Put plainly, Muslim background believers who show up in Christian churches in the West are often not received well. Isn't that sad? Isn't that tragic? And yet, Christ calls them. And he calls them to be a witness. To, the, to, to be a witness to each of us to build our faith that God's hand is not limited to culture or tribe or distance or how Likely or unlikely it is that someone that we know or don't know would come to faith in Christ, even if they're living in Saudi Arabia and unable to be reached by Christian men and women. We are to learn from the Magi that God is calling the ends of the earth. They are the first fruits, but God will call more and more and more, and he is a third of the planet, more Christians living today in the world than ever in the history of the the church. That's obviously partly a product of population, but it also recognizes that God is reaching people that we can't see. Philip Jenkins, a famous author and speaker and writer in this time, said that, that we're actually in the West now living on the outskirts of Christendom, that Christendom is now centered in the east and in the southern hemispheres. How important is it for us to recognize the work that God was doing, beginning with the Magi? Now, as a kid, I I used to love to play with our nativity set. Don't tell my mom. I'm 52, but she'd probably still punish me for doing that. But we had these great porcelain uh, nativity scene figures, and we had a great um, stable, you know, so we had the whole nine yards, and they were all painted, they were hand-painted, which is probably why she'd kill me, but I love playing with them, 
when she wasn't around. And, uh, and I, loved, I loved the fact, I especially loved the fact that one of the wise men was black. I thought that was so cool. You know, because it was a very anglicized, you know, nativity scene. And so they were, they were pretty Anglo-looking. But, but not this one black wise man. I thought he was the coolest. I liked to play with him the most. And, and you know, the reason that's, that was represented that way is because the, the magi represent all the nations, all tongues and tribes and peoples. That, that, that coming, it's one tradition has that, that, in fact, one of the wise men was coming from Europe, one from Asia or or from the uh, from the you know from far away east you know further away than just the Middle East Asia or, and then one was coming up from Africa hence the the black wise man and and I, but I I love the fact of that 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 diversity in the the wise men now is that true I don't I don't know I mean probably not you know they probably all came from ancient Persia. But I love that the church early on began to try to describe this diversity of cultures coming together. Some have one as an old man, one as a middle-aged man, and one as a young man coming. Three wise men representing the diversity of age. I love that idea. Some traditions even give them names. I, don't, I have no idea what those names are, but, but they're sometimes even named. And, and all sorts of stories are told around these magi. Why? Well, because they, they represent all that God wants to do, the way he wants to build our faith through this diversity of community that comes to see the Christ. When you hear a story of somebody that was totally opposed to the gospel and yet comes to faith, it builds your faith. I think that's one of the strengths of C.S. Lewis's testimony because he's so transparent about how resistant he was to the gospel when he became a follower of Christ. The other thing I think we're to learn from the Magi is to be convicted by the complacency of those who were closest to Christ. I know we never want to identify with the the bad characters in the story, but I think biblical narratives always are a caution to us to be aware of how others responded. Isn't it interesting how when, when Herod is there, Herod the Great, because he had brought prosperity, not because he was necessarily great, and he, but he had brought prosperity to, the, to, the, to Israel. He was cooperating with the Roman overlords. Herod is, is confounded by this knowledge that there's these magi, these wise men that have come looking for this newborn king, this Messiah to be born. He turns to his religious leaders and says, like I would do, it's like, guys, t- what, what's going on here? Tell me what's going on. And they, of course, go straight to the scriptures and show him, in fact, that Bethlehem is, is prophesied, that it's where the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, will be born. It's right there. And yet, none of them go to check it out. Now, lest you think that Bethlehem and Jerusalem are a long ways apart, they are not. If you ever travel to, to Jerusalem, if you ever go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, if you're in Jerusalem, it is just a matter of a couple of miles over to Bethlehem. This is not a long distance to come. And by the way, let me just set the record straight. James, the banners were not in the wrong direction last week. They were reflecting the fact that the Magi were still on their way to Jerusalem to meet with Herod. Now they're headed towards, towards Bethlehem, which is why we've got them turned around. So I just wanted to make, make sure clear. So Bob, you were right the way you lined them up. Now they're turned around, going towards, first to Jerusalem, 
and then on to Bethlehem. Just a little brevity there, so, okay. I just had to, I had to defend my man, Bob. But isn't it strange that these, these, these religious leaders don't, we're, we're told in the scriptures that they're disturbed by the news. Herod is disturbed by the news, but they don't go. They just, it's almost comical. You go find out where this child is and then come and tell us that we can go and worship him. Wink, wink. Of course, we know what Herod has in mind. He's going to kill this baby king. He tries to. But there's no, there's no inquisitiveness. There's no interest in pursuing it. They are disturbed and they remain passive in the whole account. Michael Green again tells us in his commentary that they didn't want to be disturbed by their ordinary lives. It was inconvenient. Life was good for these religious leaders in Israel at the time. Living under Roman authority with lots of freedom extended by Herod, they weren't interested in pursuing Christ. Thirdly, I think the Magi remind us, bring us back to a proper approach to worship. We're told that they go to the, to the, the, the Christ child and his mother and they fall prostrate before them. They fall on their faces before the king. They humble themselves before God. They don't come proud. They don't come as emissaries expected to be respected and treated with a certain level of dignity. They come in and they fall down before Christ in humility. They're not put off by the humble beginnings of, of, of the Christ life. I mean, imagine coming into the manger, coming into the, to, the, to this barn animals and, and all that they're seeing in humility, peasant woman and her child, and yet they're not put off by that. Why are we so impressed with impressive things? When the, when the theme of Scripture continually is that God brings great things, truly great things, from humble beginnings. Like a partially done roof and a microphone that's not working. And a motley crew of clergy and laity and congregation seeking to live out Christ's purpose for them in the world. Why? Why are we so impressed with impressive things when God uses the humble, the small beginnings? Not the magi. They, they aren't put off at all. They, they lay their expensive gifts before this peasant king. Gold representing his kingdom, his kingliness. Frankincense, an incense implied in the name which was used in worship in the temple and which reminds us that, that the priestly work of Jesus to, to bring God and man together, to reconcile humanity to God. And thirdly, myrrh. That's the strangest of all. Notice it's not mentioned in Isaiah 60. Just golden frankincense. But the myrrh, the, the oil of anointing, it was used in the preparation of a body for death, foreshadowing the cross, the means by which Jesus would reconcile God to man, and man to God. 
through his cross. Ironically, the only two times that in the Gospel of Matthew the phrase, this one born king of the Jews is used, is here in the birth narrative and at the end of Jesus' life when Pilate puts those words above the cross that Christ hangs on. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. True worship understands humility before the great king. And we don't come in our pride, but in our humility before him to receive all that he has. And we've made everything we can possibly made, and it falls short. Maybe it's time to quit trying to do the things that we're trying to do and begin to simply seek him for who he is. Accept him for how he comes to us.